The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to gather around the throne this morning that we might have a right vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that He might reveal clearly to us You and Your majesty, Your glory, Your love, and Your grace. We ask, Father, this morning that You would help us see the faith that you have cultivated in our hearts, that we would rejoice, Father, over the love that you have made here even in this church, and that we would see clearly it is because of the great hope that it's laid up for us with you in heaven right now. We want that hope to do its right work. We want to see Christ and the glory he will bring. We want to know who we are in him, the inheritance that we will enjoy, being seated with him at your right hand. Father, make that clear to us this morning, I pray. Forgive us for forgetting these things, for loving little and for lacking in faith. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would do a mighty work here, that that would not be the same. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this church this morning. Bless your true churches here in San Jose. Bless the pastors with the unction to preach faithfully your word, for the gospel to go out, and be pleased, Lord, to save many. We ask that you would do this for your own glory in the honor of Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. Last week we had the great pleasure and honor of beginning to look at this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, a covenant community in Asia Minor. We had a chance to meet Epaphras. We'll see him again today. He was Colossae's pastor. And if you remember, he went to Rome to visit Paul while he was in prison. He went to give Paul a message of encouragement because of the faith and the love and the hope that he was seen take place in his church at Colossae. And he went to the Apostle Paul to warn him that there were false teachers trying to get in. And they were trying to sow seeds of dissension to disrupt the faith and the love with the philosophies of men and human traditions and religious asceticism. They were trying to add to the great person of Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient work upon the cross. And so what Paul does is after this normal greeting where we, we received... Um, an understanding of who wrote the letter and who it was to be written to, Paul goes into a prayer. And this was common in his letters. But it wasn't without purpose. It's actually a two-part prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, which we'll look at today in verses 3 through 8. And it's a prayer of supplication, which by God's grace we'll have a chance to look at next week. But as we read through these prayers and the next few chapters, I, I want us to keep in mind the purpose of the letter being written. It was certainly to encourage the Colossians, and it was to lift up the supremacy of Jesus Christ and our new life in Him. But Paul was writing at a time when the church in Colossae was in danger, in danger of heresy, philosophies, the teachings of men coming in and ruining the gospel of grace. And so every word that Paul writes in this letter has two distinct purposes. Number one, to strengthen the faith of those in Colossae. And number two, destroy any and all false teachings trying to make their way in. 
So we will read it this morning as well, that we will not be disqualified. And we ask that God would strengthen us and guard us from these same potential dangers. There are three things I want to look, three aspects of our faith that I hope will strengthen us this morning and help us destroy any false teachings coming in. Number one, God's work. I want us to see God's work. Number two, hope's fruit, the fruit that hope actually produces in the life of a believer. And number three, man's classroom, where the gospel is to go out. So let's do that. By God's grace, you're here to listen, that you'll shake off any lethargy. If you're at all tired, then make sure you got lots of good oxyhemoglobin going around in your head so you can hear well and process well. First point, number one, God's work. Look again at verse 3. Paul said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So whenever Paul and Timothy got together and whenever they prayed for the believers in Colossae, they thanked God for two specific things. They thanked God for the faith of those in Colossae and they thanked God for the love that they had for one another in Colossae. And so when Epaphras brought this report to Paul and Timothy... Paul and Timothy were very encouraged, and I imagine they immediately went to God, and through prayer, they lifted these uh, thanksgivings up to him. But a question I think we need to ask is, why would they be compelled to thank God for their faith, and why would they be compelled to thank God for the love they have for one another? And when we think of faith, and we clearly define faith as, as that movement of the heart where you put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ as Savior, why would they thank God for that? And if we see an active love amongst the children of God in Colossae, loving one another as Christ loved them, why would they thank God for that? Isn't faith a a trust by man in the Savior? And isn't love an act of the will to, to put someone else above yourself? Why would they be thanking God? First, we must understand the faith that Paul is referring to is a saving faith. It is a faith that brings someone into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is a complete and total trust a person puts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the receiving of grace, and for the hope of eternal life. And so Paul thanks God for their faith because the Bible says that our faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Many of you know this. Paul again, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is what? It is the gift of God. Now, I know in, in, in many modern evangelical circles, they talk about faith as being reduced to a decision that we make or a feeling or a religious act or baptism. Some churches go so far as to say that you can have faith without being born again by the Holy Spirit. Um, we believe these to be false teachings because the Bible says otherwise. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter 8, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If someone is not in Christ, they are in the flesh. If they are in the flesh, they cannot please God because they cannot have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, in order to believe, the Bible says you must be born again. You must be made alive because we are all dead. And that's why Jesus said clearly in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot believe in that which you cannot see. And you cannot see if you are still dead. And so regeneration, being made alive, must precede a saving faith. And so this is why Paul thanks God for their faith. He says, thank you, Lord, that they have faith. Because if they believe, Paul knows they've been made alive. If they have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, Paul knows they have been born again. And that process of being born again is God's doing. And so Paul says, thank you, Lord, for their faith. Regenerative grace. He also thanks them for their love, which I found quite interesting. Look again, verse 4. We always thank God since we heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Why? We said, okay, I understand the faith, but why would he thank God for their love for one another? Isn't that something they're exercising? 
Isn't that something they are doing? And the answer is yes, of course, it is their love. But, but Epaphras, when he went to Paul, he wasn't talking about common grace love. He wasn't talking about love that you see in the world in marriages or amongst friends. He was talking about a supernatural byproduct of their faith. He was talking about a God-given, God-ordained love. The word here in the Greek is a word you know, it's agape, but it's not philos. It's not a brotherly love. It's not storge. It's not a parental love. It's not eros. It's not a romantic love. It's agape. It is sacrificial. It is other-centered. It is a love that is divine in nature that puts other people over self. And, and that's what Paul is hearing Epaphras say. Remember, Paul had never visited the church, and Epaphras comes and says, you're not going to believe. You're not going to believe the love that's taking place in that city. I mean, these believers are loving each other, independent of their race or their language, independent of their socioeconomic background or their personal belief prior to coming to a saving grace. And it was expressed in such a way that Paul and Timothy both gave thanks to God because it was a love truly born of the Holy Spirit. How could the native Colossians love the Greeks? How could the Greeks love the Jews? How could the Jews love the Greeks? How could anybody then love the Romans? How could a slave love his master? How could a prisoner love his jailer? And yet, this is what they were seeing. This was fruit that was taking place within the church in Colossae. A saving faith connects us to Jesus Christ, right? It talks about us believing in Christ, being saved in Christ. And when you're connected to Jesus Christ, then you have the love of God as well. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, it is he who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the greatest fruits that we see by being in Christ is a love for one another. An agape love, a selfless love. And it is a mark that a person has truly been born again. When this agape love is being manifest in their lives, and we see that, is an indication indeed that they have in fact been grafted into the vine who is Christ. And the love comes from Him. And so Paul is able to say, God, I thank you for the love that I see because that love is a gift that comes from you to them. And the whole community was seeing it. So why would, why would Paul begin a letter with thanksgiving to God? And you say, well, I know the letters. That's a, that's a standard beginning. That's, that's how he does it. He's always praising God. And that's true. So we, we see that this is how he opens a letter. But I believe also that he is telling them early on, the faith that you have, the love that you have, that comes from God. That is not of your own doing. And if you remember from the sermon last week, there were several who were trying to add on to the work of Christ. They were trying to supplement the salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so there was room for people to take credit, not only for their salvation, but their sanctification. There was room for those in Colossians to say, look at our faith. I mean, we're something else. I mean, look at our love for one another. And they would take credit for that and rejoice in that, not because of God, but because of their own glory. And so Paul starts off with this thanksgiving, saying, listen, your faith and your love, it's glorious indeed, but it comes from God. It's not you and God. It's not you. It is God who gave you this faith, and it is God who gave you this love. And you would stop me and say, well, no, wait a minute. Is it my faith or is it not? I mean, don't I believe in Jesus Christ? And if you do, then yes, it is your faith. And you say, and, and is it my love or is it not? If I'm, if I'm loving my brothers and sisters as Christ has called me to, am I not loving them? Is it not my love? And of course, the answer is yes. And you say, well, then, then how should we give thanks to God? Because your faith and your love, we must never forget. The faith that you have is the product of God giving you a new mind in Christ. The love that you have is a product of God giving you a new heart in Christ. So with your new mind and with your new heart given to you by God, you love and have faith, and therefore the glory belongs to who? It belongs to Him. It is His gift to the church. And we can argue this. Absent the new heart and absent the new mind, you would not believe, and you certainly would not love like this. This truth, this thanksgiving prayer, should make us ever humble and ever patient 
It should make us long-suffering, ever-forgiving, and ever-striving for peace within the church because the love that we have and the faith that we have is a gift from God. Amen? All right. So first we see the glorious work of God in the lives of the saints, and Paul praises God and gives him thanks for it. The second thing I want us to see is the fruit of hope, hope's fruit. Paul continues in his thanksgiving prayer, and he connects now hope and love. And the connection is extraordinary. And by God's grace, if you don't understand it, you will before you leave, because it will change how you live, and it will certainly change how you love. Look again with me. He says, we thank God for, latter part of verse 4, the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In other words, the love they have is a product of their hope. The source of their love is their faith. The cause of their love is their hope in heaven. And so I want to ask two questions and answer them. What is this hope laid up for us, and why does it produce love? I mean, what is it? What is he talking about when he says, this hope laid up for us in heaven? What is it, and why is the product of that hope a love amongst God's children? I think first we see this hope that laid up for us is the Sunday school answer. It is Jesus Christ. The hope is Christ, right? He is the pearl of great price. He is the darling of heaven. He is the treasure in the field. So it is Christ, and it is the inheritance that he will bring to us when he comes again in glory. We're told by Paul in Titus 2.13, we wait for our blessed hope. What is it? Listen, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's Him when He comes again. Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, you are to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. I love this. The eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? My beloved, I I would argue that in my life, and maybe in yours as well, that so much of the time we do not live in a manner that pleases God because our hope is not fixed upon the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ as Peter said. Peter says, fix your hope completely, 100%, in total, on the grace to be brought to you when Christ comes again in glory. And because we do not do that, because so often our eyes are fixed on the things of this world, work, school, clothes, food, sleep, lack of sleep, money, bills, comfort, entertainment, important things, but none of them have the power to direct your life or fill your heart with a love that transforms other lives. None of those will do that. The hope laid up for you in heaven can do that. So what is this? I mean, what is this hope so great and so grand that if I actually live in accordance with it every day, I will love more? I think that you want to love more. I do. I think most would say, I want to be a better lover. I want to love my brothers and sisters more sacrificially. I want to meet their needs. I want to pray with them. I want to encourage them. This hope is the eternal life promised to us by God in Christ. It is the consummation of it. And when we see Jesus, the hope is we will see him face to face and be as he is. This is the hope laid up for us in heaven. This hope God not only tells you to meditate on, but he commands you to meditate on. Even the weakest of Christians, even the most humble of Christians, he says, you will be as my son is when you see him. That's your hope. This hope laid up for us in heaven is the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of a new body, that your body, sown, perishable, in the grave, will be raised imperishable to reign with Christ forever, a glorified body. This hope is a hope of righteousness. Paul says in Galatians 5, 5, by faith we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You know what that day is? That's the day when you're glorified in the presence of God. That's the day when you come before Christ and all of your sin is gone. And you are holy as he is holy. What a day that will be. If you do not hope for that, if you don't hope for to be the, the release from sin, so there's going to be no more confession of sin, no more mortification of it, you will be holy as he is holy. What a great hope. That is the promise you have in Christ. This hope is the beginning of being with 
and reigning with Christ, Jesus Christ, forever. In His presence, no longer by faith, but now by sight. No longer praying to someone we cannot see, but talking to our Lord face to face. The highest form of this objective hope, and it is objective. It's not a wishful thought. It's not a myth. It's an objective truth. The highest form of this hope that it takes is, in fact, the glory of God. It is God's glory. Titus said, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, when He comes again in glory. There's nothing beyond this. There's no greater hope. Of all the things I talked about, the greatest hope that you can have is the glory of God. It is seeing God manifest Himself in all of His glory and all of His majesty before you as a friend, not as an enemy. One commentator put it like this, the eyes that have seen, the eyes that have been wearied by looking at many fading gleams and and seen them die away, all the things on earth that we look at and we put our hope in may look undazzled in the central brightness of God's glory. Now listen to this. And we may be sure that even we shall walk there like the men in the furnace, unconsumed, purging our sight at the fountain of radiance and being ourselves glorious with the image of God. This, he writes, is the crown of glory which he has promised to them that love him. Nothing less than this is what our hope has to entertain. And that not as a possibility, but as an absolute certainty. That is your hope. A crown of glory in the presence of God. Rejoicing in it, receiving it, and giving it back for all eternity. This is the hope the gospel offers. This is the hope the word of truth has brought to us through the word that Epaphras brought to Colossae, that they might not be misled by the false teachers. This is the hope of a real Savior. The false teachers were saying you need Christ and philosophy. You need Christ and tradition. You need Christ and religion. Christ is, Paul said, no. Your salvation is in Christ alone. Your hope is in this Savior. And he's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's in a man who came in the flesh and lived a sinless life. He ascended the throne, and in his beaten, broken body, he received the full punishment of our wrath, that which we rightly deserved by this holy God. And he did that so that we could be made alive in Christ, so that we could be spared. So instead of God punishing us for our sins, he put that upon Christ and offers to us instead grace, forgiveness, holiness in his son and love this is what he desires to give all those who repent and put their faith in jesus christ the world hopes for heaven too in fact it's rare that i talk even to an atheist who doesn't have some hope in some afterlife that it'll be good or better for him but those who hope in heaven apart from christ hope in vain jesus said i am the way and the truth and the life and no one without exception, comes to my Father in heaven apart from me. It's only through Christ that this hope is realized. It's only in Christ that there's a hope of being raised from the dead and inheriting the kingdom that God has promised. So the question I have then is, why does this hope laid up for us in heaven, how does it lead to love? Why does it lead to love? Peter, 1 Peter 1, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, this hope is not a worldly hope. When I say hope in the worldly sense, people think a wish or a hopeful thought that something will happen. It's the hope that we see in Disney movies. It's that false hope that when someone says, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. That is a lie, by the way. You cannot do anything if you put your mind to it. This hope is a living hope. And it's a living hope not only because of its end and aim, Jesus Christ and God who is the living God, but it's a living hope because of its effects. It actually changes the way people live. Living, powerful, transformative in nature. It's a love, this hope that we have in God produces the love in our hearts that actually changes the way we love one another. Early in the church, 
there was a Christian author and philosopher by the name of Aristides. Right around 125 AD, so early still in the church, early 2nd century, he writes this about Christians. Listen. This is his observation of the love that was being manifest. You can kind of get a picture of the church in Colossae. Christians walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. They call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. If there is among them a man that is needy or poor, and they have not an abundance of necessities themselves, listen to this, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy their necessary food. This is the love that was being manifest in the early church. And it was manifest because of the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. Why? If you have Christ and you have the promise of the inheritance of the kingdom of God, if indeed Christ was serious when he said, blessed are those who are meek for they shall inherit what? The whole earth. You get the entire earth. If that is true, if you have the glory of God and the eternal blessings of heaven and indeed the entire earth, then what can you want? What are you lacking? And if you have all that right now in Jesus Christ, then does it enable us to die to ourselves that we might live for others? We can die to ourselves. And you know what I mean by that. That means you can use your time and your money and your resources and your education to bless others. You can give it away. Why? Because you have everything. You can give freely. You can give generously. You have eternal life. You're going to get a resurrected body. You have an inheritance of Christ and this earth. You have the very glory of God. And therefore, you can do as we sing. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of what? Of His glory and grace. You look upon Christ. You contemplate this hope that is laid up for you. Laid up for you. Waiting for you. It is secure. Peter makes that very clear. You cannot lose it. It's there for you. And because of that, you won't need to hold on to so tightly all the things that you think you need for your life. The time that you said, I, I can't spare this time, you can give away because you have Christ. The money you said, I cannot spare even this $20, you can give away freely because you have the entire earth coming to you. You won't need to hold on to those things that you think you need to live. You're going to get it all back, my beloved. And I would argue infinitely more in Jesus Christ. You're going to get it all back. You realize that. If you've given $1,000 to a friend because they couldn't pay their bills, you get all of that back and more. So what will you do if you fixed your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Christ comes again? What will that do for you? You will give your life away. You will die to yourself. It won't be all about you. Others will now come into your sphere of influence, and you will love them in this agape sense, sacrificially. It means that your time will be used to bless others. That may mean coming alongside a brother in Christ who's going through a real difficult time. And even though you're tired and you worked all day long and you want to go home and eat and go to bed, you will go to their house instead and you will listen to them and you will pray with them and you'll bring the word of God to them. Why? You can't lose anything. You've inherited the earth. It means you'll re use your resources for the betterment of others. It means if you have a sister in Christ who's struggling financially, you will give of your money. You'll give of your resources to bless that sister. Why? Because your hope is in heaven. You have Christ. It means you'll take all your skills and your money and your affections and you'll use them to bless others. My beloved, if, if you're a billionaire and you realize that you've misplaced $20, I don't think you're going to have an anxiety attack. I don't believe Bill Gates, when his water bill goes up by 25% like ours, I don't think it bothers him. I don't think it does. He's a billionaire. My beloved, you are trillionaires in the kingdom of God. You are spiritual trillionaires. Give away as much as you can. Give away your life 
because you get it all back and infinitely more in Christ. It means, my beloved, that you will become long-suffering, able to love those who are hardest to love. Why? Your hope's in heaven. Your identity's in Christ. You can love people that are difficult to love because your joy is not here. And when that person comes into your life and they make you miserable, your joy's in heaven. Your needing to be liked is not necessary in Christ. He defines you. Christ defines you. Your hope in Him defines you. Your future inheritance defines you. And that, that enables us to take passages, some of the most difficult passages like Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, and we can actually do it. Jesus said to love them by not resisting the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You will give to the one who begs from you and not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How do you do that? How do you love someone who hates you? How do you love someone who is stealing from you? How do you love someone who is beating you? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you realize how transformative this is? If your hope is not in Christ and the inheritance he will bring when he comes again in glory, then this command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us in Matthew 5 is an impossible command. It's impossible, but not for you. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is in heaven. And so you can love like this. You will see your brother or sister in Christ. And no matter how difficult they are to love, you will love them because they're fellow heirs with you. They're fellow heirs. They're going to reign with you one day. They were so precious to God that Jesus Christ spilled his blood that they might too be redeemed. It means that you will engage in the hard work of their sanctification. You'll pray for them. You'll bring God's word to them. You will spend time with them. You will love them when it's good and when it's bad. So let me ask you this, my beloved. Rhetorical, introspective question. Do you lack this love in your life? Do you lack it or is it there? How are your relationships with the members here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church? Are you loving sacrificially? Are you loving sacrificially? Are you making peace where there is strife in the body? Are you seeking unity in the body of Christ? Are you doing the very hard work this requires us to do? I'm not talking about a feeling. I'm not talking about this cultural definition of emotional love, but I'm talking about an active, intentional, sacrificial work for the well-being of God's bride. Hard work. If not, then maybe, maybe, you've taken your eyes off Christ. Maybe you've not fixed your hope on the grace to be brought when he comes again. Maybe the hope that is laid up for you in heaven seems like a distant dream. Maybe. And therefore, it's no longer cultivating in you the proper vision. Things growing strangely dim in the eyes and the light of his glory and grace. Paul wanted the Colossians to see that this hope that is producing such a wonderful display of love in their lives was real and it was growing. Look again with me at verse 5. Paul says, Of this hope, he's talking about, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so Paul is saying, do you see the product of your faith? Do you see the very real agape sacrificial love that is being manifest amongst the saints? He's saying, if you do, and it's a product of your living hope, then know the truth of it. Do not listen to the false teachers. Do not try to add on to the saving work of Jesus Christ the philosophies of men and the human traditions, and the do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. The apostle sets before them these three great measures of their faith, faith, hope, and love. He brings it before them, and he says, this is the very real work of God through the gospel. This is what God has done. This is what he is doing. You received it in your hearts, and you're living in, in accordance with it by the Spirit. He says, stay the course. 
Stay the course. Do not be disqualified by the false teachers. There's such a danger today still of being misled. Even in gospel-centered, reformed churches of being misled, so many places, so many churches compromising on the infallible, inerrant word of God, refusing to hold fast to the sacred truths that we have in our Bibles. Some of you probably heard that last week the first gay Anglican wedding took place in Britain. First one in Britain in the Anglican church. Just a day after the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's the head of the Anglican order, said the issue of gay marriage is a, quote, intractable problem, a difficult problem. He writes, this is more complex than having a binary approach. There is not an easy fix. The Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that the marriage between a man and a woman is between a man and a woman. It is fixed. It is binary. It is black and white. It did not sit well with the Anglican church in Africa, which is a a church that still adheres to the word of God. The Ugandan archbishop, Stanley Nagali, he argued that until the church comes back to a standing on principles such as this, that marriage is the covenant between a man and a woman, he and his church would refuse to participate in their annual conferences. And he writes this, until the Bible is put in its rightful place as the authority for our faith and our lives. This is a loving act. He was blasted in the media as being a hateful man, and yet what was he doing? He was bringing God's Word back to the governance of our lives, how God created us to live. He refused to participate in the foolishness of what the church was doing. I praise God for Archbishop Nagali. And I pray that all of us would stand firmly upon the word of God and remain steadfast, knowing that this is how we express our love. So we've seen God's work, faith and love. We've seen hope's fruit and agape love produced in the life of the church. Last one, what part do you play in all this? What part do you play in this faith and love and hope that we saw manifest then, that we still see manifest today? This great movement of God's Faith and love and hope was not just isolated to the tri-city area in Asia Minor of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Paul said it was moving and growing throughout the world. Look at the latter part of verse 5 again. He said, The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and it is increasing. In other words, he said, the same faith, the same love, the same hope that you're seeing move here in your community, it's taking place all over. In so many cities, covenant communities enjoying faith and love and hope as gifts from God. And I believe Paul tells them this for a couple reasons. First, he doesn't want them thinking they're they're just an isolated church, that this is just happening here in Colossae. He doesn't want them thinking that God's powerful work is not taking place in Ephesus and Laodicea and Philippi and Thessalonica and Galatia and Jerusalem and Caesarea and in Rome where he is. He wants them to know that the fruit of their love is real. He wants them to know that their faith is real and that it's not just an aberration in Colossae in this time. And so he's giving them affirmation. Don't listen to the false teachers. Don't listen to those fools who are knocking at your door trying to dissuade you from the very love and hope and faith that God has given you. It's not just happening here. He said it's happening everywhere and it's growing and it's bearing fruit everywhere. He wants the church in Colossae to realize they're caught up in a much larger movement than what's happening in their own backyard. They're part of the glorification of God through the universal church. We must have that same encouragement today. When we look upon Silicon Valley and we hear from George Barna that San Francisco and San Jose and Oakland are the most de-churched and the most unchurched country, uh, places in the country, when we hear that, we cannot be discouraged because even though the secular age may be, may be running amok here, there are other places in the world where the gospel is on fire, places like Iran. Nepal, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and now China. Do you know that the estimates are that China is the largest Christian country in the world? China. You say, well, how is that possible? They have the most Christians, most people think, and therefore they are the largest Christian nation in the world. When you see secularism thriving here, 
in San Jose. When you see it's making its way into the church and we begin to embrace the ideology and the morality of a secular world, know this, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing everywhere. And so we must not be myopic in our vision. We must take our eyes up and say, praise God for the work in Iran. Praise God for the work in Nepal. Praise God for all of our brothers and sisters who are being saved by grace, who have the same faith, the same love, and the same hope in Christ in China. That's our church. These are brothers and sisters that we will gather with around the the wedding feast of the Lamb at the banquet table. I also believe, though, that Paul... He, he brings them back to this global mission because he wants them to take responsibility and participate in it. Where do I get that? He identifies Epaphras as the one who brought to them the gospel of grace, the one who brought to them the word of truth. Look with me. <clears throat> he says again at the end of verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. He says, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Had it not been for Epaphras going to Ephesus and hearing the gospel by the Apostle Paul and Epaphras going back to Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae and sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, had it not been for this work of God through him, they would still be an unsaved people. They would have no faith or love or hope because they would not have Christ. They would still be Pagans, worshiping pagan gods, listening to false teachers. They would still be dead in their sins and transgressions without hope. But a teacher arrived. Epaphras came and he brought to them the gospel of grace. Many heard, many learned, many understood, and many were saved. Epaphras was identified by Paul as a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. And now, my beloved, we, with the hope of the glory of God before us, we want to be, as a church and individually as people, faithful ministers of God as well, on behalf of Christ. When Jesus said in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. It wasn't just to the apostles, and it wasn't just to the disciples who would come. It was to the church This is a commandment to us. We are to go and to teach. We are to go and to make Christ learners of those who do not know Christ. By doing what Epaphras did. By going and teaching that they might hear and understand and believe. By going that they might have their lives changed by the same faith and the same love and the same hope that you enjoy. What does this look like for us as a church? What does it look like for Cambrian Park Baptist Church? It means this. It means each and every one of us looking around, picking our heads up, and, and seeing people in our lives, those in our workplace, those that live next door to us, those that we see in the neighborhood a lot, those in this church who come to this church. It means looking at them and asking this question. You are going to ask this question. How can I bless that person by bringing them one step closer to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. How can I do that? How can I see where they are in their relationship with God, not knowing God at all, hearing the gospel but not being saved, in the church, not in the church, how can I see where that person is and then bring a word from God as Epaphras did to Colossae that I might bring them one step closer to the grace of God in Jesus Christ? It means looking at a neighbor who has never heard the gospel and doing what Epaphras did, you take to them the word of truth. Share with them the gospel of grace that they too, by God's grace, might hear, understand, and believe and be saved. It means going to a good friend who you've already shared the gospel with, but they don't believe. Do you just wipe your hands? What do you do with that good friend? You go back. And you spend time, you answer questions, you share the gospel again. Make sure they understand that God is a thrice holy God and will not not forgive, will not not punish all sin. Make sure they understand that they are sinners in need of salvation and that Christ is that Savior. Make sure they understand that the hope they can have too, laid up for them in heaven, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Make sure they understand that their end will be condemnation and hell if they don't repent and believe. Make sure they know that. Tell them about the hope that you have. Tell them about the inheritance of Christ. Tell them about the earth that's going to be yours. Tell them all these glorious things. Maybe God will use that to draw them in, compel them to repent and believe and be saved too. It means when you look at your parents who profess Christ but have no part in a covenant community of believers, you will bring to them teaching on the community of the church. You'll bring to them the Word of God, and you'll tell them all the blessings of being part of a covenant community and all the dangers of not being part of a covenant community. It means you will come alongside a professing believer who's immature in the faith and not just leave them there. It means you'll see them. I mean, you'll see them. You'll say, let's meet for coffee. Let's have lunch. Let me come over to your house. Let's open up the Bible. And you will grow them in the faith. It means you'll come alongside brothers and sisters here, mature brothers and mature sisters who are growing in the faith, and you'll encourage them, and you'll share the gospel with them. You say, why? Why would I share the gospel with a mature believer? Because everybody needs to hear the gospel every day, multiple times. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, lest I take glory, lest you take glory. Discipleship, Christ learning everywhere, all the time. Being faithful, fruitful ministers of the gospel means that we're going to be like Epaphras. Epaphras could have stayed in Ephesus with Paul. He said, no, Paul, let me, let me come alongside you. I'll be your co-pastor. I'll be an associate pastor. I'll be your youth pastor here in Ephesus. Paul said, no, go back. Go to Colossae. Go to Laodicea. Go to Hierapolis. Tell them the truth. Share the gospel with them and make disciples. And so we will do the same. We will prayerfully and intentionally seek opportunities amongst all those in our mission field to make Christ learners. You say, well, that's going to be hard because that means I'm going to need to sacrifice some things. I'm going to need to sacrifice some time, maybe a lot of time. You will. You want to make a Christ learner? It's going to take time. He said, I, I might even have to sacrifice some of my money, and I love my money, but they might need help, and then i got to help them. It will take money. He said, it's going to take resources. I'm going to have to study. I'm going to have to pray. It's going to mean I have to die to myself. And the answer is yes, but you will want to. You will long to because your hope is laid up for you in heaven. Your hope will compel you and move you to love like this. You have Christ. Peter says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And in this, Peter says, you rejoice. Because of the hope and the faith that God has given you, you will love like this. You must love like this. You must. So if you find yourself struggling with this type of radical, other-centered, agape love, not praying for people, not ministering to people, not sharing the gospel, not praying for, not having coffee with, if you don't do this, then the first thing is to repent and ask God to forgive you for your lack of love. The second thing is to ask Him to make your path straight. Tell Him, ask Him, request of Him to give you that hope that is laid up for you in heaven that will produce this type of love and then stoke that love by stoking that hope. Create in your heart and mind, a true understanding of the hope that you have. The call to worship from Revelation 21, which I want to read again, and then I'll close in prayer. This is what is awaiting you. This picture we have in Revelation 21, John gets of Jesus Christ bringing heaven to earth, and this is what you will participate in if you know Christ. You won't be judged. You won't be condemned. You won't be cast into hell if you're in Christ. This is your future. Here's your hope. Listen. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then, listen, my beloved, listen to your hope. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That is your hope, God with you. He will deal with them, and they will be, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And then in verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's your hope. Not a wishful thought, not a Disney movie. That's the real hope awaiting you in Christ. This hope laid up for you in Christ is real and will compel you to love one another. Christ said, for this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So let's do that. Let's, as God's people, cultivate that hope in our hearts and minds that manifests itself in a radical, other-centered love for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must admit that our love is not what it ought to be because our hope in you is not what it ought to be. We praise you for the faith that you have given us. We know that it is a gift from you. We would not believe unless you made us alive in Christ. And we praise you for the love that we see, but we do ask, Father, that you would magnify it, that you would increase our love, that it would be more than just a feeling of affection for one another, but it would be real and have hands and feet It would be a love filled with prayer and sacrifice. It'd be a love that meets people in the wee hours in the morning. It'd be a love that opens up our pocketbooks and gives generously. It'd be a love that requires of us time and resources that we do not want to give, but in Christ, because of the hope that we have, we want to give. We ask, Lord, that you would do that by increasing our understanding of Jesus Christ and the glory that will come when he comes again. Help us to understand the inheritance that is promised to us. Help us to see what we already have, that we might give it away for you, for others, for your glory. We ask that you would do this, Lord, so that indeed everyone will know that we are disciples of your Son, that they will see our love, and we can point it back to you, all the glory, all the honor coming from you as a gift from above. Father, I pray that you would do that in my heart, pray that you would do that in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here. We pray that you would do that in your church throughout the world. Bless our brothers and sisters in Iran right now who do not have a place to gather. Bless our brothers and sisters in Nepal right now who are being persecuted and put to death for their faith. Bless our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia. Bless our brothers and sisters in China who must meet on this day underground lest they lose their lives. Bless them, Father. Let your word of truth go out. Let the gospel reign in such a magnificent way that we see here, even in this secular culture, God, you glorified through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this great work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.